Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the show. As you know, this show couldn't exist without your generous support. So if you'd like to contribute and support the show, head over to the Brains Matter website and click on one of the green donation buttons. There are a few donation options available. You can donate in US or Australian dollars, but if you have any other currency, don't worry, those will be automatically converted over. Remember, this is your show, and without your support, it wouldn't be possible. Now on to the episode. Welcome to Brains Matter, the podcast on science, curiosities and general knowledge. I'm your host, just an ordinary guy. So, welcome to the show, Jake. Thanks. So, tell us a little bit about your background to start off. I think if, if to characterize my career so far, it's just been kind of happenstance mm-hmm. and maybe serendipity. I was doing my undergrad in biology, and I expected to either be a high school teacher in science or maybe go into pharmacy or something like this. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, took a conservation class as my... Um, first semester going into my senior year and the professor was a young researcher, um, young professor who just started and uh, we got along really well and, and at the end of the class, uh, you know, I'd go in and, and, and talk to him a lot and try to figure out my life and uh, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I'd probably be a teacher. My parents are both high school teachers. And he said, no, you don't want to do that. You want to be an international field biologist, do conservation. I was like, oh yeah. You're right. That's what I do want to do. But it didn't really seem like an option. You know, it just kind of seems like something you see on TV or you hear about or read in National Geographic, but it doesn't, there's no real direct path to that, it doesn't seem like. And um, so I worked with him at a small nonprofit in New Jersey, uh, in the states where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And during so that. So did you do that while you were a student? So I finished. I finished undergrad. And then started up, um, like right immediately before I graduated, I started as an intern and doing shorebirds research and, and also just general salt, salt marsh ecology and conservation, especially with this turtle not called the diamondback terrapin. And while I was doing that, I had the, the option to, to work with this international group doing shorebird research in Cape May, New Jersey, which is an important place for shorebirds, migratory mm-hmm. shorebirds. And a, a big contingent of that international group, especially the leaders, are Australian. And um, Clive Minton, who uh, he's from Melbourne, and uh, he's known as the godfather of uh, shorebird research. He, uh, we had a, a couple good days of catching and banding birds, and he came up to me at dinner that night, and he said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to come to Australia. You're going to live in my house in Melbourne. You're going to take my car, do work all over Victoria, then drive up to Broome and join our expedition up there where we mm-hmm. catch and ban thousands of birds. So for the non-Australians, Broome is the total yeah. opposite side of Australia. Yeah. Is that 4,500 kilometres? Yeah, give or take? something like that, <laughs> yeah. And then drive down on the west coast back to, to Victoria, back to, to Melbourne, and stay here for a while longer and do more work. And it's going to be fantastic. And so... 
it was right. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. And a few months later, I was I was here for several months in Australia, and um, did work all over the place. I worked with penguins in Phillip Island, and I worked with lots and lots of birds, and did some did some fruit bats and all sorts of kind of random stuff. And that was my first experience outside of the states ever, mm-hmm. and um, and also but my first. How did it feel doing that? It was awesome. I mean, it, it felt like. So yeah, coming I, from someone who thought they were going to be a high school teacher yeah. and then thought, yeah, this conservation thing sounds all right, but then actually going out and doing it in a foreign country. Yeah, so I mean, I, I grew up watching uh, natural history shows. Mm-hmm. And so you'd, I'd see that and, I'd, you know, that was my the dream, but just didn't really seem like a real feasible, realistic thing. And so to be able to do it was awesome. I mean, I, it just there's no describing how amazing it was to work with these really experienced scientists mm-hmm. who who you know, knew everything about these species that they're, they're studying how to work with them and do this work. And, and they, they're, they're so open. I mean, that, that, that's my experience with conservation is that we want more people. Mm-hmm. And so they're really willing to take anybody who's willing to work hard. I mean, I, I would do anything from, you know, I'd wash the dishes really well and I'd clean up equipment really well and because and, I couldn't contribute other ways. And so then that always ended up leading to something else. So I went back from Australia, having uh, you know a great time here, took the grad school exams, and then two weeks later went to Chile um, in South America for about a month to do more shorebird uh, work down there. And then I went to several, several other places doing work, uh, especially around the States, and then had the opportunity to do my PhD in um, studying in West Africa. Mm-hmm. So I, I studied... Uh, um, this monkey called the drill, drill monkey, and a subspecies that lives on this island off the coast of Cameroon called the Bioko drill mo- monkey, so it's Bioko Island. Um, there, are no, there have been no studies of this subspecies and only one real focal study on the, uh, the mainland subspecies, and so we really didn't know much about it. And I like a challenge, mm-hmm. and it's a really difficult species to study. It avoids humans. It, it's very quiet, lives on the ground primarily, so it'll, it'll run through the, the, the undergrowth and so I spent almost seven years going back and forth from uh, West Africa to the States, spending anywhere from three to five months in the field in, in a tent at a time and, you know, collecting a lot of poop. That's, <laughs> you know, a lot of what I, what I did. But, um, you know, learning about as much as I could about their history. And then I was finishing that in 2003. End of 2003, I was Finish, finishing my dissertation, and I got a call from a, a researcher at my university, at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and he said, when do you finish? And I said, December 14th. He said, are you going to finish? I said, yeah. He said, well, what are you doing next? I was like, well, I'm not sure. I had a few things in, in line that were kind of follow-ups to my PhD, but I wasn't really certain, so he said, do you want to go and help start a, a captive release program for giant pandas in China? And I said, uh, yeah, but let me think about it for a few days and so like three days later I called and was like let's meet and now I've been there for four years. Because you've done birds, you've done monkeys, how do pandas compare? The one, I think one of the things, I, I get this question a lot, you never worked with pandas, why are you doing pandas now? And that's a big, um, I think maybe misunderstanding of how science in general but also especially conservation works. In conservation we take examples from other species and habitats and, and problems Mm-hmm. and then apply it to something new. I and mean, that's the whole point. You're learning from the past and yep. applying it to something new. And so um, wh- what my expertise is is field work, doing observational behavioral work, um, ecology, and then tying that on into conservation. 
and there's also a lot of similarities between the the monkey that I studied and and giant pandas. So mm-hmm. the the monkey that I studied uh, at low elevation, it eats fruit, and it's just like a monkey that eats a lot of fruit, and it can. You know, eat fruit for a couple hours a day, and then it's good to do everything else it wants to do. In the high elevation, it switches to a diet that's uh, mostly uh, herbaceous vegetation, kind of like the stalks of of different plants, and really low quality diet. So it ends up having to switch to a behavior and activity pattern that where they have to just eat all day, browsing and, and eating all day. Um, that's really similar to giant pandas and kind of the evolution of giant pandas where they got stuck in this area where they were able to withstand the the, the ice ages where a lot of other species died off. Um, they just became really specialized in this area that had a ton of bamboo. And so they don't have a lot of time left for other activities because they just have to focus on eating. In terms of the similarities, they're also really difficult to study because they live in dense bamboo they're better at moving through it than humans are. So when you're trying to observe them, they will go away and you won't even know that they're there. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of how to work with uh, those monkeys that I studied in Africa and how to work with giant pandas in in China. But then obviously there's a lot of differences. So we're taking some lessons from especially black bears. And so, yeah, giant pandas are, are kind of an enigma at least they were for a long time, and, and a lot of things about their their natural history are still not that well-known. And you'd think for such a big, charismatic, well-known species around the world that we would have a lot of understanding about their natural history and their ecology and behavior, but we really don't. So giant pandas are bears, but they didn't know that for a long time, and that was even a contentious point until the 90s. And so they thought that giant pandas were maybe in its own family, you know, closely related to red pandas or lesser pandas, we'll call them. And then some people thought they were bears. Uh, they thought that red pandas were in the Procyonidae, which is raccoons and, and those sorts of animals. And so maybe giant pandas were actually in that group and closely related to, to raccoons. But then uh, mostly through genetic work, they figured out, no, they're bears. They're just really divergent bears. They broke off a long time ago, roughly 19 million years ago, from the other bears. And red pandas are in their own family, uh, away from, separated from all those things, from, mm-hmm. from raccoons and bears. So they're, they're, they're a bear, but they're a very unique bear because of their finding this really interesting niche mm-hmm. inside bamboo. And so everything... Everything that makes them unique is is in some way relatable to bamboo and, you know, how much of it they have to eat. Like, for example, they're the only cold-weather bear that doesn't hibernate. And, and so they live in, you know, deep snow, meter-deep snow, and still be active because they just can't build up the fat reserves because the bamboo doesn't have it. And they're, I mean, they're, they're so weird. They have, they have um, you know, they go into estrus to mate. The female can only get pregnant for three days out of the year and uh, you know once a year and that's you know related to the timing of when the bamboo shoots are coming and and because the bamboo shoots have more uh, nutrition in them and so it's just just a very very strange animal but when you put it into context of of having to eat bamboo Mm -hmm. and and also the abundance of bamboo then it makes a lot of sense so it's almost a total synergy with the natural environment around them yep so the bamboo thing is something that's always fascinated me because you would, you know, if you go back to being in primary school or learning about animals and so on, you think 
bears tend to be carnivorous and they need to eat a lot to have enough energy for mm -hmm. such a large body. Yet bamboo, as you said, doesn't have a lot of nutrition in mm -hmm. it. How, do we understand how they've evolved to be able to eat just bamboo and still have such large bodies? Yeah, so, I mean, their strategy is, is quantity. I mean, that's what they've, they've their strategy is, is totally based on quantity. So, um, whereas other bears, you know, if they find, say, black bear, if they find a dead animal, they'll eat that dead animal. Or if they find berries, they'll spend time eating those berries and they'll kind of move through an area eating whatever is available. Um, but then they can also spend time to look and search for other things. Uh, pandas don't really search, so if there's a dead animal, they'll eat it. If there's some so fruit. they are carnivorous as well. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're they're, they're omnivorous, um, but it's it's um, totally based on what's available, mm -hmm. kind of right in front of them. They yeah. can't waste the time to to go very far, uh, to go and and find some other food source, even if it has relatively high nutrition, because they have to just keep on shoving bamboo in their face. And so, you know, they just became super specialized with it. I mean, one of the the weird things about them is. Um, most of their ecology, behavior, physiology is specialized for eating bamboo. So they, they've developed this extra thumb, mm -hmm. pseudo-thumb, um, where this, this small bone that's uh, not in very many people anymore, but it's um, you know unnoticeable in a lot of species or absent. They've evolved it to be much larger where they can grasp the bamboo and, and they have a lot of dexterity in their hands. Red pandas also separately evolved this. Mm -hmm. So they both have this pseudothumb. Pandas have massive dentition. Their jaws are, are huge. Their their teeth are huge and specialized for cutting through and chomping down a bamboo. Um, you know, they have that big, round, cute head because they have massive uh, muscles that attach to the big crest on top of their head. So they have all those, those specializations there. You know, the timing of reproduction is specialized to it, but their gut's not specialized for bamboo, mm -hmm. which is just odd. You know, you, you'd expect them to have really, you know, really specialized, long gut so that the bamboo has a long time to go through and they can take as much nutrient out as they can. You'd expect them to have a lot of gut bacteria that would help them break down the, the bamboo, but they don't. They have mostly carnivorous um, or omnivorous uh, gut system. You know, the question is why, and the answer is because they can, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's usually a lot of times the answer to weird questions in evolution. It's just availability. Yeah, they it? can just eat and eat and eat, and so they'll spend 14 hours a day eating, and then they have this big belly full of, of bamboo, you know, 10 kg of bamboo in their stomach. And then, you know, they rest for a while, wake up, poop it all out. And then mm. they just keep on eating again. And mm. it's just that cycle of, of continually going through that. And so, you know, the, I have this kind of cheesy line that I always say is that they're not lazy, but they're masters of energy conservation mm -hmm. because they have to be, you know, if you ate that kind of diet, you'd have to just eat and eat and eat and rest and rest. And you, you hinted at earlier at the the difference between black bears and, and um, pandas. Do you want to go through some of that? Yeah, sure. When I first worked with black bears and pandas was, uh, you know, roughly four years ago. And I say that um, pandas are like black bears that are running through molasses or something like a really thick mm -hmm. liquid because everything about them is a little bit slower <laughs> and maybe a little bit more deliberate. When you work with, hands-on working with black bears, they're like dogs very similar to working with dogs. They can, you know, run fast, they can jump high, they can jump from tree to tree. You know, they snap when they bite. So they'll snap at your hands and but they can also grab and things like that. So it's a little a little different than working with dogs. But 
pandas are kind of lumbering you know when they they run it's not very fast you, you know most people can outrun a panda um, unless you're going downhill but they build up speed and it's hard for them to stop uh, they can't jump and then also in in terms of you know their motivations black bears because they have more energy because they have a higher energy diet they can kind of waste time on other activities. So if you're working with a group of young black bears and you're going for a walk through an enclosure or out in the woods, the black bears are running all over the place and checking everything out, lifting logs and just they're super inquisitive, just looking for everything. With pandas, they're they're only interested in, in food. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'll go for a walk and the whole time you're going for a walk, if they find some bamboo, they'll stop eating the bamboo. And then you know, they'll stay there until they're done eating that bamboo and then you'll keep on going for a walk. And I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the point of, of our project is, is walking the animals, walking the bears. There's it's just a very clear difference in, in just how quickly they move and what their motivations are and uh, when you're working with them. You mentioned your, your project. Do you, do you want to mention the work that you're doing at the Chengdu Panda Base yeah. now? Yeah. So, so about a little more than four years ago, I was contacted by this um, nonprofit in the states called Global Cause Foundation, and they were facilitating Panda Base, help develop this reintroduction program, and so they were, you know, contacting. So S- are these pandas that have found their way into cities, or why, yeah, so, why are they being okay? So, so, so. So one of the, the first objectives of the conservation of giant pandas back in the 70s, there was a big die-off of bamboo. So bamboo is a grass. Um, it primarily spreads underground through its root system, but then um, through some periodic cycle, which can be 10, 15, 200 years, it'll flower. And when it flowers, all the above-ground growth dies. Mm-hmm. And so pandas need bamboo, and all the bamboo of, of, say, one species will die. And if that's a major bamboo it'll be an entire mountainside that's gone. So now this panda has no more food. And, you know, 10,000, 15,000 years ago, it would have just moved to the next mountain over, but now there's a road there or, mm-hmm. you know, a reservoir or a city, and so it can't. So in the, the late 70s, there was a big flowering event, and so tons of pandas were coming into cities, coming into towns, uh, emaciated, starving, because there was no food. Obviously, they recognize this as a problem, the Chinese government and, and, and uh, researchers there. And so they said, okay, well, let's first, let's, you know, take these into captivity, you know, rehabilitate them. And then they started doing surveys and they realized, oh, wow, there are very few of these things. And so those early surveys, there was, you know, 2,000 or less, 2,000 or fewer pandas. So they're classified as endangered at the moment. So, uh, so at that time, they had no idea. They did the first surveys, and then they recognized them as being rare, and then that eventually turned into the classification of endangered. And from those initial founders from the wild, they started this captive population. And over time, as you do, you get better at breeding them. And so uh, one of the, some of the things, especially at the Chengdu Panda Base, they got you know really good at, at caring for them, managing their health, breeding, reproduction. Uh, one of the big, it, it's such a, a simple thing when you think about it now, but at the time you didn't really know it, is that you know a female panda can only take care of one cub at a time primarily, but they have um, singles or doubles about 50-50. Mm-hmm. So 
in nature, you know, the, that the twin, one of the twins would usually die. And in captivity, that would also happen. And um, so what they figured out is that uh, if you switch out the cubs, reach in, take a cub from the mother and put the other one in, then both cubs can survive. And this is really important for the first, say, 30 days because the mothers milk the colostrum. Mm -hmm. In most, this is another re weird difference between giant pandas and, and other bears. Because the cubs are born so kind of prematurely compared to other bears, they're really small. They're about the size of a stick of butter. Mm -hmm. And it's the biggest difference between a, um, a young and adult mammal And uh, in terms of mass. The cub has to get it, the colostrum for about 28 days. Other bears are maybe five or six days. Mm -hmm. So their immune system is really weak for a much longer period of time. And so they, if they don't get that colostrum, then the cub's probably going to get sick and die at a very young age. Uh, and so what they figured out is if you can switch them out, then now you can have high survival rate of both cubs. And that's what they did. And they figured out more about their reproduction and how to get them to breed in captivity and artificial insemination. And a lot of that came about in the 90s. And now they're really good at making pandas, you know, pandas, um, birthing pandas and reproducing captivity. So now we've had this large captive population and they've, you know, worked to make the, it more genetically diverse and, and learn more about that uh, through a lot of research. So we're at the point now where we can start working on reintroducing some of those new cubs that are born into the wild. But the big question is how? They haven't experienced it. How do they survive? Yeah, and their and their their mothers and their grandmothers and their you know grand grandmothers they have all been in captivity. Mm -hmm. They um, pretty much you know sit in one spot, and they eat for forty percent of the day and they sleep for sixty percent of the day, and that's about opposite as wild pandas. Wild pandas you know are awake and active, eating for about sixty percent of the day, traveling and stuff, and so our contention our point is that the those innate behaviors are still in them it's just that if you leave them in a conditions where they don't have to use those natural behaviors they're going to go away over their life mm -hmm. and so uh, the point of our project is to take young cubs that are born in captivity select ones that we think have a higher chance of success based on their behavior and their health and the reaction to new objects and new stimuli and then we take them through a series of successively larger enclosures and more wild enclosures. And we do this using human assistance. So this is like kind of the weird part of our project. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only weird if you don't really know that much about uh, reintroduction programs around the world. There are a lot of programs that use uh, human assistance. So the, you know, the, the film that, that I'm here promoting is... Um, Pandas 3D from IMAX, the last film from these directors, Drew Feldman and Dave Douglas from IMAX, who's Born to be Wild. Mm -hmm. It's focused on um, projects where they take orphaned orangutans in Borneo and orphaned uh, African elephants um, from the Sheldricks in, in, in Kenya and raise them by hand, by, you know, keepers raise them and then take them out into the wild over a, a slow transition. And both those projects are hugely successful. And there's this project in New Hampshire in the States that they've been doing this uh, primarily with its three people. And Ben Killam was the one who initially really started the, the project and it's him, his wife and his sister. And they have a, a maple sugar farm and they just, they were getting orphaned 
black bears from logging activities or, mm-hmm. or road kills or things like this. Um, eventually, he, you know, so he got a license and then they started bringing him the cubs. And so he hand raised them inside his house and then he built a barn for them. And then when, it, when he had this barn, then they had to go out. So he built an enclosure for them. And then he just started taking them walks out into the, the, the wilderness where they're, they're, they'd eventually be. And in doing so, he could slowly transition them and natural predators for younger cubs would stay away because he was there. I mean, animals avoid humans. Mm-hmm. And the, the other black bears, the wild black bears in the area, they kind of learned from the cubs that he was walking with that he wasn't a threat. Bears are super smart. And they know individual people. They know how we sound, we smell, we look. And so he would go out, and sometimes he could get in pretty close to, to wild black bears because of this. And he'd see how they interact with his bears that he was walking. And so he started that in the 90s. Um, his, the first bear he released, it's, his name's Squirty. Uh, she's a pretty famous black bear in the States because he released her 22 years ago. She's had... I can't, I think it's like 11 litters. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's 22 years old, you know, still today he can go out and change her GPS collar by giving her some Oreo cookies <laughs> as a reward, you know? So he puts Oreo cookies, down. cookies yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and so he gives her these cookies and, um, he can change her collar without sedating her. You know, he can make these observations with her and her cubs and, and the wild pandas and uh, wild black bears in the area. But at the same time, she lives in a, you know, there's a lot of people in New Hampshire. There are a lot of hunters that hunt black bears in New Hampshire. And she's survived for 22 years without ever having a nuisance problem. She's never messed with anybody's house. She's never been shot by a hunter. And so that kind of upends what a lot of people think about when uh, uh, an animal gets used to one person. They think, oh, then they're habituated to all people. Mm-hmm. But animals are really smart and um you know, you think of it as kind of a, a cost-benefit. An animal, just because it knows you, isn't going to be cool with everybody else because there's a risk associated with other people. And and the easy way to think about that is if you have a dog. You know most, your dog, but yeah, you don't yeah. know if the other dogs are safe. Yeah, well, and, and the dogs know you, and they act differently with you than they do with strangers. Yep. Um, and some dogs are more friendly than others, and they may go up to other people. But, um, you know, these are bears that when you, you know, keep them in these large enclosures and they're only dealing with, you know, three people – Right, right now, if you went into the enclosures with the pandas that we have uh, that are in the program right now, you'd never find them. You'd never see them, even though you have a radio collar and you can go and you can try to track exactly where they are. They'll just avoid you. Mm-hmm. You can call their names and try to do whatever you want, but they know that you're not one of us, and then you're a potential danger. So we are actually sitting in a sound booth in the basement of the IMAX studios. You mentioned the the pandas documentary. How did you get involved mm. in that? Kind of by default. <laughs> um, so the, there are two directors, co-directors, Drew Feldman, Dave Douglas, and a ton of experience with, with IMAX films. Dave has been with it since almost the start, and uh, Drew's had um, a few really successful uh, nature documentaries. And so his last one, Born to be Wild, it was orangutans and elephants, and they're interested in doing uh, black bears because it's a very similar st- structure of the, the program. And so they kind of approached Ben about it but at the time it just didn't work out and and these are are four museums so they're about 40 minutes in length and having three species and three study or uh, stories in that is is a bit much so they kind of tabled it but drew would continue going back to see ben and really just to play with the black bears Mm -hmm. and because he has every year he can have anywhere from five to thirty 
black bears that he's taken care of and, and Ben always wants you know some help so he'd go and, and check out the project and then uh, at one point Ben mentioned oh you know I'm, I'm starting to collaborate in China to help uh, develop the reintroduction program for giant pandas at the the panda base and Drew's like oh that's something that we can make that was you know so it's, it was a long time getting even to that point and then from that point um, it started to pick up a little more and then um, a few years went by and then they hired me to come in and help push the project forward actually before I first went to, to China Drew came to Philadelphia to meet me and we met and, and went to the, this Irish pub that's near the, the university and, and we talked about the film and talked about what his ideas were and then they, he and uh, Dave Douglas would come to China you know, a few times a year to see where our project was at, what we were doing, build the relationships with, with the, the panda base and the leadership there. And, you know, the pandas are a national treasure, mm -hmm. and you can't just go in and film them. You can't just go in and, and do this. There's a lot of oversight, and, uh, you know, everybody is very, very concerned about anything that could be, you know, harm them or could be even perceived as harming them, and they should be. Um, and so it just took, you know, a few years of that prep work from, from IMAX and from Drew and Dave, and they're, so, they're super experienced, and they've worked with so many animals that... Um, and they care about the work. So then it just, they came and last year did most of the, did all of the filming for the, the movie last year. And two different, I think two different um, time periods of several weeks. And tried to just get as much footage as they possibly could. And and I was kind of the the oversight person, but also the, the handler. So anything that they were interested in doing, you know, had to get cleared and had to have permission from everybody involved in it. And if something was just outrageous, you know, they didn't have that many ideas that, that weren't responsible or something, but they'd say something. I'm just like, we can't do that. There's no, there's, that's not going to fly. And then, you know, getting permission for them. And, and then actually when you're filming, going and picking the areas that would work for 3D and the wide format and then also that I knew a panda would go to because of their natural behavior. And they'd say, okay, well, we really want to get her eating this kind of bamboo, you know, which is what one of the, the species that she'll eat. Uh, where can we do that? That would work. And so we go s scout some areas inside of her big enclosure and then go set up and then have to go and see if we can, you know, encourage her to walk there just by going and talking to her and then go and walk there. So pretty much involved with every aspect of the, the filming. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a really exciting time. It was, yeah. It was, it was, it was fantastic. It's, it's not often, that as a conservation biologist, you get to share what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, because of that, um, you know, you're so busy actually doing the work, you don't get to share it. And so it's not as transparent as you'd want it to be. Yeah. And uh, that lack of transparency, you know, maybe might come off as nefarious. I mean, I want transparency in my government. I want transparency in everything. So so this is like such an awesome opportunity to be super transparent, get a, a, you know, a really good idea of what we're doing in the most beautiful format that you possibly can, IMAX, and um, especially the, the 3D. I always hated 3D, and then I saw this, and I it freaked me out. <laughs> and I... I, I hate relating it to PTSD because it's it's not it's like mm -hmm. whatever good PTSD is. The first time I watched the like some footage at IMAX, um, the, the headquarters in LA, and we was on their IMAX screen and we're sitting there watching it and it felt like I was right 
there at the mm -hmm. time and it like the feelings of it and the smells and the sound just all come back to you it's like oh my god this is amazing and just to be able to share that with people is fantastic and this screen here at that this this imax melbourne is the biggest imax i think it's in the world yeah okay. biggest mm -hmm. in the world that's mm -hmm. at least that's what they say <laughs> no but i think it's and and so yeah it's just it's just it's amazing to be able to be that immersed in in it so for those people who are getting excited listening to this right now go 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 to IMAX and check out the the pandas documentary uh so what's next for you i i i go back on saturday and sunday i have a meeting with the um some government officials about um we're getting ready to um start working in a, another nature reserve mm -hmm. and that reserve is a little better for our our project um it's more panda habitat fewer pandas you know we want to um we're still early in our our efforts to to release pandas and so we want a place that has the highest chance of success which means not very many pandas so that the the ones we release have a good shot of creating their home range not very many humans so there's not many disturbances for those pandas and also it's 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 just really really great habitat and a lot of it so hopefully end of this month beginning next month something like that we'll be moving some pandas there mm -hmm. and and continuing the process of of getting them out into the wild sounds really exciting thanks well, it is dr jake owens thank you very much for your time today my pleasure thanks a lot Thanks for listening to the show. You can check out the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com. That's www.brainsmatter.com. And you can find all the other episodes of the show there. Just click on the podcast link on the right hand side. There's also other information on the site, such as subscription details, both via iTunes and manually. If you want to support the show, have a look at the support the show link. You can make a donation via PayPal. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave an entry on this episode's show notes on the webpage, or you can send me an email. All my contact information can be found on the site. The theme music Future is performed by Cut Copy and comes courtesy of Glenn Gertz from Modular Records. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now.